Hey everyone, Sadie Lincoln here, and I'm so happy to be guiding this conversation around my favorite topic, how together we can redefine what success in fitness means. Today, I am here with Hillary McBride, a therapist, researcher, speaker, and writer who is making psychology and empirical research on body love more accessible. She is the podcast host of Other People's Problems and a regular co-host of the podcast, The Liturgists. Hillary is the author of a wonderful book I highly recommend titled Mothers, Daughters, and Body Image, Learning to Love Ourselves the Way We Are. I had the great pleasure of attending one of her retreats, and I know firsthand she is gifted at helping people grow, heal, and become empowered in body and in life. In our conversation, we explored why the vast majority of us are chronically dissatisfied with our bodies. But even more importantly, she shares research about how we can change the story and to learn to truly love our bodies. And spoiler alert, the answers have nothing to do with reaching an ideal or some kind of external measure of success. Thank goodness. So you might want to take notes. Hillary's practical steps to loving your body directly relate to bar three and what we practice every single day. Hillary's wisdom has changed me in a profound way, and I am thrilled to be able to share her with all of you. Okay, hi, Hillary. Hi, Sadie. I am so, so happy to have this conversation with you. And I already know we're going to run out of time before <laughs> <laughs> I get everything in because I spent three full days with you and I felt like we just scratched the surface mm -hmm. and I wanted mm -hmm. more of you. And uh, for everyone listening, I attended a retreat that Hillary and her uh, business partner, Lisa, led um, that was incredible around, um, it's called the Sacred Feminine. Is that right, Hillary? That's correct, yeah. Yes, and it had a profound impact on me. And throughout yeah. the whole weekend, I kept hearing a voice inside my head telling me, I need to share you with my audience because what you're doing is elevates what we're doing and it provides so much good background um, around why we all really need to be conscious about practicing being empowered and loving our bodies as they are. Um, mm. So first off, thank you for your, your work in the world. It's really beautiful and I'm so happy to share mm. you. And I would love in your Thank own you, words, you're welcome. Mm -hmm. I would love in your own words to describe what your life work is and perhaps mm. what inspired you to do what you do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's two, there's two angles to this. There's what it looks like on the outside. And so um, I have a PhD in counseling psychology and I have a practice and I research and teach and write and do therapy and speak. So there's all of those things on the surface and those are the easiest things to point to, but I would say underneath the surface and maybe the heartbeat of what I do is, is helping us all be okay, helping us all realize that we all already are okay and have been okay. And one of the areas that I focus on in that is our relationship with our bodies. There is this consistent tension that we experience, particularly women, but increasingly so men, 
around our bodies, um, our relationships with our bodies in the sense that our bodies have to be different than they are, that we have to change our bodies to finally be accepted or okay. And the research tells us that actually, like the all of the empirical research that we have about changing our bodies shows us that we don't actually become happier when we change our bodies to meet appearance ideals, that, that there's something else going on there. So mm-hmm. a lot of my work, clinical research, writing, speaking, and otherwise is about helping us be in healthy relationship with ourselves as we are instead of feeling like we have to change who we are to be okay. You have an alarming statistic you brought up, um, mm. and I don't remember exactly what it is, but the vast majority of us yeah. struggle with our bodies. Yeah, absolutely. The research uh, shows us that between 85 and 95% of women are dissatisfied with their bodies to the point of hating their bodies. And if you look at that, like, I mean, those are odds that anybody would bet on if you were gambling. Like, it, mm-hmm. it's a it's a really high percentage. In fact, it's so high that there are some people who have said maybe that's a normative part of being a woman. Maybe that's a normative part of being a human if you hate your body. If the numbers are that high, then the people who don't are actually the exception. Those are the people who might be abnormal in some way. And my, my emotional response to that statistic was – terror and fear and anger like that <laughs> yeah. that's not an okay statistic and i I, are, I literally mm-hmm. have a lump in my throat as you talk yeah. about that 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 would be okay or normal yeah and i mean i mean we've got research to show too that when there are some women who would rather get hit by a bus than gain 10 to 15 pounds that there is this like total disproportionate fixation on weight as being the problem with what's going on for us, that we're willing to compromise quality of life. And and I don't think that means that we're bad people if that's what we're thinking about. I think it means that we've been buying everything that our, our cultural narrative about bodies has been selling. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm hearing you say this, and I'm saying it too, that I think that there's more for us out there than to than to hate our bodies and think that's normal. I, I have a vision for us as humans especially for women, for girls and women, where we can shift that number away from 5% of women who are satisfied and love their bodies to the other, you know, flip the statistic to where it is the 90, 95%. Yes. And that's, I want to dig into that. And before Mm -hmm. we do, talk to us about in your research and your knowledge, why it is that so many of us and specifically women, but I, I would offer that the men in my life also struggle, um, no matter who you identify as being in our bodies is a struggle. And mm-hmm. um, this is a deep-rooted narrative in our history. Um, yeah. Will you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that's some of the shame is that we all feel alone in it, like it's just me, it's just yes. me. And I, I'm always saying, of course you're struggling in your body. Yeah. Of course course you are. Look around you. We're born into this world that tells us we're not okay. Yeah, exactly. So even though I my discipline is psychology, which tends to be quite individual-based, if we're looking at psychology from a feminist perspective, we're also looking at how what's going on in our brain-body system is also impacted by our sociocultural context. What are the messages that we are taking in through media, through attachment relationships, without even knowing it, that are creating this sense that our body is bad and that we need to do something different about it. So although we are individually carrying this shame about our bodies, 
If we turn our gaze up and outward, it's pretty easy to see why we feel that way about us. There is a a patriarchal capitalist agenda that's going on that says your body is bad and if you buy these things and if you do something different to your body, then you'll finally be okay. And we can trace that back to a few different ideas and, and one of them is that You know, bodies are bad. We've seen that in a few different faith and spiritual traditions that sometimes people kind of twist, I think, what are really good, beautiful words and say that our our bodies are bad and our bodies are the problem. And we can see that that actually comes from Greek philosophy, that Plato was one of the first people to say that, that our bodies are bad. And it was a great way to cope with the pain and suffering of having a short life and people having diseases and dying all the time because... You know, we didn't understand medicine in the way that we do now. So if the body was bad, it meant that there was this other part of us, like our spirit, that was good. We could transcend the body in some way. And that that idea ended up influencing a lot of uh, philosophical thought, a lot of religious and spiritual thought, and is filtered down into the way that we kind of live our lives now. But our bodies become this scapegoat that is used— used to sell things truly mm-hmm. so there is a there's a i would say like pretty explicitly a patriarchal agenda where where women are seen as being inferior in some ways or less valuable and yet here's the crux of it that often women are told no 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 but your body is valuable just for sex or for being a sexual object or for the gaze of another person so the the tension here is that we're told bodies are bad except if they're desirable by whoever you want to desire you. So we get stuck in this tension of hating our body, but then feeling like we have to shape our body to be good because our bodies are paradoxically then a way to have value. It's Mm -hmm. a kind of messy social context that we get stuck in. But we have something called the tripartite model, which tells us there are three three main ways that we get messages about our bodies. And these are through parents or attachment figures, media, and then peers or whoever we're interacting with as an equal. And those three streams consistently send us a message, your body is bad and you need to change. So our parents, media, Mm -hmm. and peers. Mm -hmm. Um, So speaking of parents, I'm just going to jump right to this. You are author— you are the author of a beautiful book that I recommend everybody get, um, even if you are not a mother or a daughter. It's called Mothers, Daughters, and Body Image, Learning to Love Ourselves the Way We Are. And you're, you write about the role of the mother, and and I'm a mother of a teenage girl, so that mm-hmm. it, it really struck home for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I really took from it is how hopeful it is that— that the statistics of 85 to 95% of us not liking our bodies is is really depressing, frankly, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And there is so much hope and that we can change the narrative and that our daughters can grow up in a world where they learn and we learn to be compassionate and loving and accepting and mm-hmm. empowered in our bodies. Mm-hmm. Will you speak just a little bit about it? I mean, I know, again, we could talk yeah. for days. Um, I know. Yeah. But you're kind of the, the, in a nutshell, what this book is about and perhaps some key highlights and, and learnings that you had in, in, in writing it and researching mm-hmm. for it. 
Mm-hmm, absolutely. So a key highlight, and I think everybody who's a mom or a parent out there will appreciate this, even if you struggled with your body, it doesn't mean that your kid has to. And up until the point that my research came out, we had an overwhelming amount of academic literature that said a parent's body image is most is the most significant predictor of how a child will feel about their body, not necessarily because it's some sort of like genetic mapping that gets Uh, passed on through the body, but rather because of all of these implicit things that we do, you know, how a parent stands in front of the mirror and grabs the skin that hangs over the top of their jeans, or how the parent portions out food for one member of the family and then another member of the family. All of those implicit messages end up creating this story about bodies that sometimes parents don't even know they're passing on. So historically, the research has been pretty pretty depressing. Uh, it helps parents take responsibility and go, okay, I really have to work on myself and my own body image if I want to give my kids a better chance. But what I what showed up in my research, and I talk about this more in the book, is that moms don't have to love their bodies perfectly for their daughters to be able to do that. And that's pretty revolutionary. And some of the ideas around that, um, one of them I call giving your kid a ladder. And the idea is that you you and where your ceiling are gets to be your kid's floor, mm-hmm. that the most that you can get to gets to be the place that your kid can start if you tell them what's been going on and if you communicate honestly and openly about the kinds of things that you want for them that maybe are hard for you or that you've been working on to get them there. But the giving of a ladder means that Sometimes you encourage your kids and, in fact, often encourage your kids to go beyond where you've gone. And in the process of doing that, your kids will often then or child or whoever you're mentoring can say, whoa, I've climbed the ladder and I'm up here and there's some things that I've learned and I want you to come join me. And there is this reciprocal relationship that happens that when we're in relationship with people who are healing and growing, we benefit from it if we're open to it. So there's that piece of it. Uh, the second piece of it that's, I think, really important is that there is not a lot of space culturally for women to talk about loving their bodies. And this extends beyond parents and, and really into all of us as people, mm-hmm. particularly as adult women. There is a story that we like to tell that helps us bond with other women. And we call this the, the actual sociocultural term or the sociological term is called fat talk. Wow. And what happens is that women bond over hating their bodies. Yeah. There is a way to say, oh, you think your body's bad. You should see mine. Or you think you ate something, you know, bad. I'm using air quotes here, but like bad. Mm-hmm. You should have seen what I ate on Thanksgiving. And what we tend to do is either comfort another person or reassure them in some way by putting ourselves down or by creating a sense of commonality. Oh, you're struggling. I'm struggling too. But what that means is that there's no room in the discourse. There's no room in the dialogue for what it means to not hate your body. Right. So there's a phenomenon that shows up, which is that when women do love their bodies and they don't want to talk uh, smack about themselves, the conversation tends to fall flat. So the example that I use, mm. and you could imagine this, Sadie, yeah. too, like you walk into a coffee shop and you hear two women chatting and they're talking about their day and how things are going and how they felt about the holidays or, you know, whatever's coming up. And one woman says, oh, I just can't stay. I just, I I really want to eat that scone, but I, you know, I really shouldn't because I had too much to eat yesterday and I was so bad yesterday. So I need to be really good today. And what would happen if the other woman sitting across the table said, oh, I don't, I'm so sorry you feel that way. I don't I don't actually think about food in terms of good and bad and I I love enjoying what I eat and I you know what? 
I really love my body and I wish that you could too. You, you are so good as you are. Like mm-hmm. what a healthy response, but where does that conversation go? I mean, we don't have a script for that. <laughs> yeah. What is the other woman? Like could you imagine two women sitting in a coffee shop catching up or going for a glass of wine or something and saying, what do you love most about your body right now? No, well, what do you love most about your body? You know, I actually have <laughs> tears in my eyes right now mm. because that's what we do. Um, yes. The, yes. Our Bar 3 community does this does mm. we've held mm-hmm. space for the positive conversation yes. and i have in the last 11 years healed by being around so yeah. many women who we have all consciously changed the language we've mm-hmm. changed the conversation and mm-hmm. we do I mean, I was just talking to my friend Sarah and a client of ours, and she was saying, yeah, at at bar three, she said, what's so beautiful is I've learned to change my own language in my body while I'm working out. Like, wow, I'm I'm so capable. I'm capable of so Mm -hmm. much here. Mm -hmm. And and I love, I'm so thankful for my feet and my thighs. And she was just saying how she just does this gratitude talk. And then the most powerful part of what she just shared with me is then she said she takes that and she looks around the room and she says to herself in her head, you have, you're so beautiful. You're so strong. You know, you're so resilient. And, um, you're, you know, she, she says that to herself about the other people in the room. And I, I just was so struck by that. And also your book and that, the that how powerful it is that we Mm -hmm. actually can change the dominant narrative. We can. And you're doing that. I mean, the things that you're describing right now are revolutionary. And the beauty is that they feel good hearing them, but we have the neuroscience to back up why that matters and how that is truly the only way that we're all going to get there is if we start thinking differently about our own body as we're engaging with our physicality even if it's hard, right, even if it means kind of resisting some old scripts and and struggling a little bit to lay down the new story, that's how culture changes. I mean, it's really easy for me to sit here on my own in a, in a recording studio and say, you know, culture is, you know, problematic and look at all the messages. But culture is made up of all of us. And mm-hmm. we each have yeah. a personal responsibility to change the discourse if we don't like it. But back back to this piece of, of information in the research, the problem is that most of us choose to socially engage in a shame-based way because it's really hard to stay connected to the women that we love when we're in this growth mentality, when we're in this thriving mentality with people who don't necessarily know how to come along with us. Mm-hmm. Because what you are doing, it matters. It's transformative. And it's revolutionary for a reason. It's because it doesn't exist in a lot of spaces outside of what you're doing. And so if we're going to change the culture, we need to have different conversations. But not everybody wants to do that. And not everybody knows how to do that because we don't get handed a script from when we're born about how to build ourselves up in the context of female relationships. That's a that's a revolutionary thing to do, unfortunately. I like how in your book you talk about, or maybe this is something I read Mm. um, in an article you wrote about that it's important for us, and it's as mothers, but I really think, again, this book isn't just about being a mother. It's about being being a leader 
and, and being mm-hmm. empowered for all the people around us. And that it's not about showing up right or doing yeah. it right. Um, it's, it's more about recognizing um, and saying out loud, wow, I've really just shamed my body. And, you know, that didn't, mm-hmm. you know, that, that's not really what I want to do. But I, I noticed I did that. You know, mm-hmm. those those yeah. those points of recognition, and then and then sharing. Oh, you know, and I'm going to proceed with purpose now. I'm going to yeah. change that doll and actually say that out loud in front of your daughter, or in yeah. front of your friends, or in front of your partner, your colleagues. Oh, yeah, the vision that you're painting sounds to me like so so hopeful. And I think I think you've got the essence of the book too. Is like there is no version of being perfect, right? Uh, that that is ever going to help all of us heal. There's actually like something important about these moments where we feel like we miss something or we're off or we we misunderstand ourselves or each other, and then being in awareness of that. And taking responsibility and changing directions, not only is that good for us because we don't get stuck in the same old loop, but it models for the people who are around how they too can catch themselves and change directions. It implies that there is something more important going on than being perfect or appearing right all the time. And the thing that's probably more important is that we heal and that we heal together. And we do that without our ego getting in the way. Mm-hmm. There's, well, well, that's called that's called vulnerability. Exactly. Right. It's, exactly. Yeah. And when and when we're vulnerable, truly, we connect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, there's nothing to connect to if there isn't some sort of um, opening. Right. The word, the word vulnerability comes from the root word to wound, and not necessarily to to wound as if you're going to get hurt, but you're able to be wounded because your heart is opening. There is a space there for someone to enter in. And that's why vulnerability is risky, is because there's the potential for hurt. And yet there's also the potential, which we forget about sometimes, for there to be even more meaningful and deep connection. And mm-hmm. it's only through the connection that we have with people where we feel safe enough to, you know, to be seen that we could risk doing new things. So let's go back to this idea of these two women in the coffee shop. If they're talking and one of them is vulnerable and says, you know, this kind of thing that we do every time where we talk about how we ate bad food and how we're bad and whose body is worse. I don't. I feel like there's more for us. And it feels mm-hmm. really scary to say that for me because I don't, I don't want you to feel bad. I don't want to feel bad. I just want to go to a new place with you together, mm-hmm. right? If that other friend says, yeah, I thank you for saying that. I want to join you and responds to the vulnerability with care and compassion and equal part vulnerability, all of a sudden there is enough safety where the two of those, those two people could build something new together, right? It's what we know in from the field of attachment and what we might even call interpersonal neurobiology, what happens in us when something is happening in you, what happens in me when something's happening in you, is that if, if you and I feel safe enough to take risks together, it's the only ever time, it's the only time we could ever create something new. There has to be vulnerability if there's going to be something new. Otherwise, we're just defending ourselves all the time. And and then that's just kind of some old story playing out. And it is an old story. I I think all of us listening to your words, we we know that conversation we've had about the scone or whatever, or about, right, ab- yeah. about the ba- body <laughs> shaming, like, oh, yeah. you look great, but my skin's hanging over my jeans and uh, yeah. you know, I'm I'm dreading wearing a bikini or, you know, that mm. that constant dialogue that we mm-hmm. engage in is I don't 
think most of us are not conscious to that. I'm on autopilot when I do that. Right. Yeah, exactly. For me, it's about recognizing, oh, I'm I'm talking that way mm-hmm. and then and then proceeding and then changing the the story, changing the narrative. Yeah. And that recognition yeah. without shame, with compassion. Oh, of course I'm talking that way. I've yeah. been conditioned to talk that way. Let's 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 find a new way to express what really matters, who we really mm-hmm. are. Mm-hmm. Um, who you know what what our true strength is. Yeah. That reminds me of something that I think about often when I'm encouraging people in my therapy practice to to expand or grow. When we're moving beyond just coping and and changing coping into really flourishing, there are a few things that I'm hearing you say that remind me of this. Uh, And our three maybe phases or steps around this are awareness, range, and then choice. So if we're not aware of how we're talking to ourselves about, about our bodies, we don't actually have a choice. We are on autopilot, and generally autopilot is the sum of all of the sociocultural messages that we've heard even before we knew we were hearing them. Mm-hmm. And that's that's a non-aware place to be. And it's really hard to change until we can notice, whoa, that's the script playing out. But then there's range, right? So if you only have one option, and the one option is my body's bad, I need to change it, right, then it's really going to be hard to choose something different in a moment when you need to. So thinking Mm -hmm. about range building is practicing other stories and laying down some of the foundations neurologically for those stories to be able to be of access to you later, which means that we practice them even if we don't believe them to be true. Yep. Because, and here's one of my favorite pieces of cognitive neuroscience, the thing that feels most true about you is the thing you've practiced the most, not the thing that is absolutely most true about you. So if you have practiced, um, I'm a waste of space, I'm I'm bad your whole life because someone handed you that narrative, it's going to feel true. And it's going to feel true long after you have other intellectual information. Okay, wait, let's pause right there. So okay. I think that is so important. My friend and mindfulness teacher says, whatever it is we practice, we become. Mm-hmm. And exactly. so many of us practice becoming something unconsciously that we don't really mm-hmm. want to become. We practice beca- becoming shameful of our bodies, not happy with our bodies, discontent. Exactly. But, okay, so I just want to rehash I'm that. I'm so glad you said that. And then yes. you can change the narrative you can even yeah. if it doesn't feel completely comfortable that's right that's right and that that piece of insight i think again that's why it's one of my favorite pieces of neuroscience it gives us permission to be uncomfortable with the new story mm-hmm. even right even if it doesn't feel true we get to choose which story we want to tell about ourselves and that that's i think the task of adulthood is looking back on our lives and going oh Oh, someone handed me some stories and believing them probably helped me cope in some way. It probably helped me fit in with my peers. It probably helped me, you know, not rock the boat with my family of origin. But my life is my responsibility now. And I don't like the impact that that story has on how I feel about myself. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to change the story. But to change the story, I need to be okay with the discomfort that comes with the new story. The new story that is capital T true even if my nervous system goes, whoa, I'm not used to hearing that, Ooh, and gives us all of these kind of like discomfort flags. So and we've got 
Yeah, go ahead. Awareness, range, and then... Yeah, awareness and range. And one last piece about range. We can Im- improve or increase our range by taking in alternative sources of media and by being with people who speak differently about their bodies, mm-hmm. which is I'm hearing what you're saying you do at Bar 3. Mm-hmm. Like that that actually sounds like a psychosocial intervention, a mental health intervention to be with other women who are saying... Here, you are allowed and encouraged to speak well about yourself. That helps us increase range. It just gives us more ideas than we had before. Then the last one is choice. You don't actually have a choice unless, one, you're aware in the moment, and two, you have other options. The third one, choice, is where it comes down to your responsibility. In the moments when I am aware of the shame story and I know there are other options, can I dig deep or reach out for resources around me or support to start telling that new story that I know is there, even though it can feel uncomfortable. But choice doesn't come if you're not aware and if you don't have other options. Right, right. Mm-hmm. That's that's so interesting. So it reminds me also of you talk about, it's a fancy word, but emotional regulations, which yeah. I, I <laughs> translated into basically the importance of being in touch with your feelings. Yes. And yeah. That is what we're practicing at Bar 3 is mm. even our online experience now when you go in, it's about how do you feel? That's the first touch point. How do mm-hmm. you feel? Mm-hmm. And then how can you align movement to that authentic connection with how you're feeling? Yes. Um, because when we do that, our hypothesis is when we start to move in alignment with our true authentic feelings and state of being, that exercise becomes joyful um, mm. and and personal versus a chore and a fight with our bodies to the finish line, which yeah. which then, we we know doesn't work. Like that, right. ju- yeah. that just doesn't. Yeah. Work. Then then exercise is a spiritual expression and and an art form instead of a way to control or subdue or change the body. It's again this flip from you need to change how you look to be okay to because I'm okay, how do I want to move through the world? Because I am connected to myself, what is it like to be me? And what do I want to live into and step into and experience? So emotion, like as a just a kind of really cool tidbit, is stored and processed more centrally in the brain than thinking. And if we're going to try and change anything about how we feel about ourselves, we actually have to work with emotion before we work with thoughts. So Mm -hmm. getting in touch with emotion means that we're getting deeper into these deep brain structures. We call them in the limbic system or like midbrain that are central for truly most of our decision making, whether we'd like to think we're rational or not. Emotions are central for pretty much everything we do. And if we're not aware of that, then they're controlling us. Then, Then we're not really, again, making choice. So getting in touch with emotion as a practice means that we both know who we are and can make some decisions about who we want to be moving forward. So the fact that you are integrating that into movement to me feels like the bullseye, like you've hit the bullseye. Yeah, I think just as a practical example, so many of us go into exercise because we want an external result. Mm-hmm. And and then we just stuff our feelings um, mm. and to, in, in pursuit of that result, which of course, again, of course we do. We're high-performing individuals who who want to show up, be seen, be heard, mm-hmm. be worthy, be attractive, mm-hmm. all these things. Um, but what I really 
understood and learned on a deeper level from you, Hillary, is that, well, that doesn't really serve me. If I'm feeling anxious or stressed out right. or not happy yeah. in my body, to like beat myself up and try to do like 20 burpees is is not really <laughs> gonna going to make me Mm-mm. better. Mm-mm. And it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What I probably, again, I like, I know I'm throwing a lot of statistics and information at you, but I think it's surprising for most of us to know that for people whose bodies, uh, they are, you know, there are, they are able to change their body and they get closer to what we think of as the appearance ideal, this thing that our culture has said, that's the best body. The closer we get, we don't actually feel better about ourselves. We actually see that psychopathology increases, that people's uh, compulsion around exercise, their anxiety around weight and their body, it increases. Their sense of conditional belonging increases the closer their body gets to the appearance ideal. So the research, I mean, the science has been in for decades now that it doesn't matter if you keep trying to change your body. If that's the way you're trying to feel okay, not only will you not feel okay, you'll probably feel worse. Yes. Yeah. So there's I, a, I hope everyone's mm-hmm. he- really hearing that because that's been my experience in the fitness industry mm-hmm. and my story of, you know, getting the body and feeling the most unhealthy, unhappy, depressed that I've ever felt um, when I sort of looked the part and I was marketed as that part. It right. was my lowest moment. <laughs> And I think a lot of us look outward and we see other people and images of what successful is and we think, oh, well, they have it. They have it. It's just me. I'm the one struggling. And the truth is we all have that struggle as part of being human. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, yeah, it, for me, it's healing to remember, oh my gosh, we all are struggling together. And we all have the ability to heal and to love our bodies and each other equally. Um, yeah. and, and in fact, that's the only way. I mean, that's where the real work is, not the changing the body, but in learning to be okay with ourselves as we are. So on a hugely positive front, um, some people do love their bodies. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, it's true. And yes. you have researched this. Yes, I have. And yeah. you, this is your life's work. So I would love mm-hmm. to um, end this conversation with some practical steps you've learned mm-hmm. along the way to, to loving our bodies. And this isn't just from like you guys, from her just thinking it or wondering about it. This is truly researched, proven good stuff that all of us can take into our lives. So what are some practical Mm. steps? You got it. Yeah. Uh, The first one is media literacy. So being able to look at media and see through the lies, right? If we look at media and we go, oh, I wish I felt that way, that's feeding the story that our body needs to be different. But if we look at media and see images and go, wait a second, where are the women of color? Wait a second, where are the fat women? Where are the older women? Like, why is there only this one presentation of a body as ideal? That doesn't make any sense. Starting to call out what's happening in media, even just for ourselves, is a way to inoculate ourselves against the implicit stories that we learn without even being conscious of it. Yeah. The second one is we need to start changing the stories that we tell with the women around us. Our relationships shape how we feel about ourselves, and they yeah. shape the experiences that we have. So try to find a girl gang, whether it's online or in person or at like a bar three class or something where you can 
where you can be a part of a different discourse. And then if you're in relationship with women who want to do the fat talk thing, if you have the opportunity and the safety to be vulnerable, to tell them how that impacts you and how you want to invite them into something different with you, that's another really good option. Um, Mm. And the third thing, I'll try and keep this real simple, although there's like I could go on ad nauseum about this because there is so much that I've learned that I feel so excited about. But this last piece is instead of trying to focus on our body image, just the outside, move into the experience of being a body. So Mm. if we're only thinking about our body from the outside, we're only thinking about, about our body from how our body looks, which is actually just like 1% of what's going on with our body. And so if we want to have a healthy relationship with our body, there is another avenue. There's another door into loving our body, and that's through experience. So when you feel alive, when you feel pleasure in your body, when you feel a sensation of overwhelming joy or gratitude, notice that as a series of physical sensations. That's your body doing Mm. that. And Mm -hmm. stay with those things. And what we know from the research is is if you have an experience of your body as good, it'll be easier to think of your body as good. Because remember, we talked about emotion as being more central to shaping how we feel about ourselves and our world than even our thoughts are. So when we get that emotion body experience of goodness, that is where our thoughts starts to change too. That's incredible. I, I'm going to give one more um, practical exercise that you gave yes. that you gave me that had a prof- okay. profound impact on my oh, life and my you. body. You had me write a letter to mm. to myself, to my body, as if she was my dearest, closest friend. And literally, I started at dear dearest body. And I wrote a letter to my body and as my best friend. And everyone who's listening to this, I, I really encourage you to do that. Sit down and and mm. and write the letter. And then Hillary mailed it to me. So I got <laughs> it. I just got it in the mail. And I it was it's so stunning and beautiful and sweet. And it helped me realize realize at more of a like a cellular level I know this intellectually and it is my life's work to practice being embodied and balanced and empowered all the things we do at bar three but again it's it, it truly is a practice because I as I was reading this I realized that I treat my body as an it as something outside mm. of me versus a her or a she mm. you know me and that's right yeah. um I think that's that's an incredible gift, um, and it it allowed me to cherish cherish my body um, mm. as I cherish my mother and my my dearest women friends around me. So thank you for that. Oh, you're so welcome. I'm so glad that that meant so much to you. It's been such a beautiful practice in my life that I do regularly, and I often start by saying, "Dear body, I'm sorry for." And just start by owning things and apologize. Oh, I didn't mean to say that negative thing about you. And then move into, and I really appreciate this about you. And I loved when we, you know, when we went on that hike together, wasn't that fun? (laughs) And moving into like the celebration and staying with the good too. That's a really important part of it. But however you want to connect with yourself, speaking to yourself as if your body is a she, not an it, 
um, or whatever pronoun feels like it makes sense for you. The sense right. of relationality is what's important. Moving out of your body as an object into your body as a subject, a being that is worthy of honoring and respect. That's so beautiful. Mm. And you're writing a book right now. Is that mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Do you know Do you know when it's coming out? Oh, yeah. Any, any? So our current release date's February 9th, 2021. The book is due to my publisher in March, but it's called Embodied. And I think the subtitle right now is Why What We Think, Feel, and Do About Our, Mo- our Bodies Matter for Just About Everything. And I'm going to be thinking about uh, talking about writing about all of this stuff Um, that we're talking about, how to be in right relationship with our body and why that matters for politics, why that matters for, you know, when we've lived through trauma or when we're in pain and physical pain, how our bodies are good even though we experience things and hear stories that might tell us otherwise. I'm very excited about it. Where can people right now learn more about you, get in touch with you, read your work? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I've got a couple books out. One's a textbook, so that tends to go more for the clinicians or theorists or researchers. Um, That's about embodiment and eating disorders and innovative approaches to treatment. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then there's Mothers, Daughters, and Body Image, which, again, like you said, is not just for mothers. It's about being human and understanding the stories we pass between us. Uh, you can find my work online, hillarylmcbride.com, on Twitter, Hillary L. McBride, on Instagram, Hillary Leanna McBride. You know, the same formula shows up all over the place. Um, yeah, those are generally the best places to check me out. I've got a couple podcasts out, The Liturgists and Other People's Problems, and a couple new things heading your way early 2020. So, uh, yeah, you can find all that on my social media. Awesome. Okay, and final question. Yes. What is your present truth right now? Oh, my gosh. I'm good. I'm good. 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 I'm good and I'm loved. Yeah. You're good and you are certainly loved. Thank Um, you, Sadie. Thank you so much, Hillary. It's been a pleasure. What a pleasure.